Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. And let's stop right there, shall we? Well, this episode is probably one for the more mature among us. Although there isn't necessarily objectionable language, the topics being covered are definitely ones that parents would probably want to preview before allowing children to listen, unless you're a big fan of uncomfortable conversations. Unfortunately, we're in a world where the concept of love as God has defined it, the system of marriage and procreation created by God, and the abhorrence of sexual perversion as God commanded are all wee out the window. And the twisted demonic logic, or lack thereof, used to justify lifestyles and choices reigns supreme. Today we're going to talk about the flippant dismissal of life, then we'll discuss how nothing is truly off-limits, and we'll wrap up with the futility of the idolization of man. So, grab your earbuds, order your favorite pre- or post-pregnancy prophylactic, and ready your world for at least some rockage, because, uh, here we go. Who doesn't love the modern conveniences of life? I can only speak for the United States, but... We've got the entire world at our fingertips in a computer many times more powerful than anything that was on the space shuttle. We can watch or listen to just about anything we want at the speed we choose to partake of it, and we can even decide if we want to deal with commercials or not. (laughs) No. We can go to the store, and, and even today, with supply chain issues, we can find pretty much anything we want in about a dozen varieties on most store shelves, usually within a few minutes of our homes or work or church, or wherever our car is at that exact moment. And if we don't want to do the shopping, we can just command one of the knaves that's employed there to do it for us, including bringing it to the car and shoving it in. And yes, I do realize that for some this is necessary. For most, we just figure, why use my legs like some sort of an animal? We can choose to culturally appropriate any food we want at just about any time we want, at just about any price range we want. And if we don't want to have to stoop to the level of putting on pants, we can again order someone much lesser than we to put on their pants, go get our food, probably not spit in it, and bring it to us. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. Don't get all uppity. And can we just talk about same-day, next-day, or two-day shipping? We can order from seemingly infinite choices from a bunch of websites and for little to no extra money, have it in a day or maybe two. And how impatient do you get when it doesn't get there on time? (laughs) Delayed? What do you mean, delayed? And now to show how far we've come as a society, we can now murder children, mostly in the convenience of our own home, with no regret, no fuss, no muss. That's it. That's the big one. Found on Yahoo News, headline, Majority of abortions in U.S. now done with pills, data shows. Yay! I mean, how long has it taken to finally just be able to medicate away a child? Too long, if you ask me. 
So the article tells us that for the first time, and bear in mind this data is from 2020, we eclipsed 50%, 54% to be exact, of abortions that were completed by simply taking a couple pills. In 2017, it was a paltry, can we agree, embarrassing 39%, but in only three years, we gained 15% on pill-based child murder, which, at this rate, in 10 years, that'll mean that 189% of all abortions will be via pill. <laughs> Sorry, that, that wasn't actually in the article. I was trying to do my own reporting, you know, like mostly how the typical media outlet does today. Back to the article. The process is simple enough. Two pills taken a day or two apart, a quick follow-up about a week or two later to ensure the clump of cells has been properly dispatched, and bada-bang, you're back on the town for a night of fun. But to last, there's evil afoot. It's possible that the Supreme Court may overturn the right a woman has over her own body. Well, I mean, not, not her body, but the body that's growing inside of her body. And if not that horrible, horrible vision of a dystopian future, the author of this article says that there are already, quote, many states that are working on abortion restrictions. Quote, more than one dozen state legislatures, which probably means 13, I, I don't know, I didn't look it up, have already introduced bans or restrictions on this kind of pill-based murder by this point in 2022. In fact, as unfathomable as this might sound, Seven states are actually trying to ban pill murder. Five states are thinking about laws that would make mailing you the pills, so you don't have to put on pants, illegal. And eight states are daring to consider, quote, barring the use of telehealth to provide medication. Except that, no, I, I doubt there's a state out there that would stop telehealth from calling it a script to the pharmacist. This is just regarding murder medication. But of course, in the article, they have to try to make this as dramatic sounding as possible. Now they have to bring Texas into the conversation and its, quote, unprecedented six-week abortion ban and the fact that in their absolute hatred, they've banned the mailing of abortion drugs and are only allowing <clears throat> alleged doctors the narrowest of windows of seven weeks to prescribe the medicine to literally stop a beating heart and kill a baby. And this is despite the fact that the FDA said it's safe to use up to 70 days or 10 weeks, whichever comes first. <laughs> and how much do we love and trust the FDA, right? I mean, completely unbiased, science-driven, human-centric, politically neutral. Sorry if you can't hear me. I'm trying to find cover in case of lightning. <clears throat> so the article gives some specifics on the pills. Mifeprostone is taken first to stop the pregnancy from growing. Then a second pill, misoprostol, is then taken to empty the uterus. I mean, how nice and simple and clean does this sound? Just stop the pregnancy and then empty the uterus. Not kill the child, then force you to literally birth the dead fetus. Nope, just stop and empty. Since 2011, the FDA has had the first drug, which I openly refuse to try to pronounce again, in their, quote, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, or REMS, system. So for 11 years, it's been in this program that's basically a system that says there are inherent risks with the medication in question, and the healthcare provider must provide all the information about the risks to the patient. So why is... Uh, I'm not saying it, drug number one in this program. 
Well, according to PubMed, in a study of deaths and severe adverse events from 2000 to 2019, they concluded that, quote, significant morbidity and mortality have occurred following the use of <laughs> mifepristone as an abortifacient. So what does this significant mean? Well, out of 2,660 legitimate adverse event records they looked into, there were 20 deaths for various reasons, 529 life-threatening events, and 1,957 severe events. Huh. I wonder how many doctors informed their patients of that little fact. And that's the risk to the woman's body. The risk to the growing baby is, shall we say, even greater. But as always, the FDA is working for you, the consumer. You know, not the science or the data or the facts. So in December 2021, under President Pudding Pants, they decided that they needed to, quote, reduce the burden on patient access and the healthcare delivery system. And although they still require getting the pill prescribed by a professional murderer, they do say that it should be allowed to be just sent via mail. And of course, this guidance was hailed as being very loving and caring, as this gives more options to the people who need them most, because around 75% of those that get abortions are low income, and nearly 60% of women of reproductive age live in states with some sort of nasty, uncaring restrictions on abortion, so they need kill pills by mail for equity and social justice and, and such. So the point of the article... Well, it's to celebrate the convenience and ease at which a woman can now abort or kill her child. If you act fast enough, you know, inside the 10 weeks, then all you need is a couple pills. At the same time, they're lamenting the flat eartherism of states like Texas that literally have put restrictions on killing children. And they come across slightly incredulous that this can't just be done through your teledoc and mailed to you for your convenience. I mean, you have stuff to do. You don't have time to spend at a clinic in order to get your abortion drugs. You're a busy woman. Mark my words, they will soon be pushing to get this as an over-the-counter drug, much like the morning-after or Plan B pill currently is. The phrasing in the article makes it very clear that the child is not involved in this equation. It's merely an inconvenient pregnancy, not a person. Just something that needs to be emptied. I can almost guarantee that they're pushing this for two reasons. The first is just to make abortions more convenient. The faster and easier we can kill these unwanted kids, the better. But I think the other reason is to try to remove guilt, shame, depression, anxiety, and regret. I mean, you didn't go into a doctor's office and have an intrusive medical procedure. You just took a couple pills. Piece of cake. It further distances the woman, and in some cases, and to some degree, the man, from the idea that you're actually ending a life. But when you try to research how many women regret their abortions, wow, you get a really mixed bag of, of stuff. And I'm not going to link all these. You can go do some duck-duck going to find all this. But loveaction.org cites a study from June 2020 that says 77% of women regretted their abortions, 38% of which dealt with anxiety, depression, drug use, and or suicidal thoughts. But just prior to that, in January 2020, a number of articles came out saying a study showed that 95% of women had no regrets five years later, even if they initially struggled with it. However, an article on LifeNews.com from July 2020 says that a psychologist confirms many women regret their abortions. 
Now, looking deeper into the study released in January, it can be found that 96% of women that could not obtain an abortion had no regrets that they didn't abort their child. According to a National Review article, also in January 2020, they revealed that the data for the study was actually really sketchy. Out of 667 women that they found from 2008 to 2010 to ask about their abortions, only about 38% actually agreed to talk to the researchers. And then five years later, about 40% of those either could no longer be found or wouldn't respond. Now, this doesn't prove anything, but it sure does taint the data. Essentially, what at least it appears like is, is that you have women that had no regrets about aborting their child more than fine with telling the world that they had no regrets with aborting their child. So see, 96%. Now, the data is flawed. The study is flawed. Now, could the study that says 77% of women regretted their abortions be flawed also? Well, it could be. This is the inherent issue with polls. You have to find people willing to take the poll, and that automatically taints the data. Trying to think this through logically, about the only data I would say is maybe less tainted is that of the mothers who say that five years after being denied an abortion, they absolutely do not regret being denied. But even there, you'd have to dig deeper into the data set. That said, the narrative that's being used, that's being spun in the media and in the courts, that women will have a lower quality of life, etc., etc., or that the child will be born into a terrible environment, doesn't appear to be as true as is being spun. As for regret or no regret that the abortion took place, it appears to be a mixed bag. But let's average them together, shall we, and say about half of women regret their abortion. Well, that's over 30 million women that are struggling with some sort of guilt or shame since Roe v. Wade in 1973. That's over 70,000 women dealing with regret in the first two months of 2022. And as I'm researching this at the end of the day, that's about 1,150 women that made a decision to end their baby's life that will regret their choice, deal with the guilt, and emotionally struggle for many years to come because of their choice today. And those numbers are if we take what I believe to be a conservative estimate of 50%. But what do we see in the media? What does Planned Parenthood talk about? What do we hear from the politician? It's the woman's body. It's her choice. Let's be realistic, though. At most, there are only a handful of women out there that literally don't understand what they're doing and that it's not actually their body that they're aborting. Women are told to celebrate their abortion, What does this do to the women that are legitimately dealing with suicidal thoughts because the guilt has gotten so great? This puts an added burden on them as they think, what's wrong with me that I can't feel that way? And the shame and regret and depression drags them lower with seemingly no hope. So let me wrap this up by saying this. If you're a woman or a man that had or agreed to or was pushed into or pushed someone into an abortion... The reality is that what actually happened is the murder of an innocent life. The Bible describes this as sin. For whatever reason you did this, for whatever lies you were told, this is sin. And it's sin because you took it upon yourself to end the life of an image bearer of God. The size doesn't matter. The level of development doesn't matter. The environment doesn't matter. And the degree of dependency doesn't matter. This was a human life. The guilt, the shame, the regret, the depression... 
Those are all natural and right emotions to feel. Do not suppress those feelings in any way, either by sheer willpower or with drugs, legal or illegal, depression meds, or any psychobabble the world has to offer. Find a solid Bible-based counselor or a rock-solid pastor to talk with. Get a Bible, open it, and read. None of us can turn back the clock as much as we all would like to, but forgiveness of sin cleansing of your body, mind, and soul, freedom from guilt, shame, and regret is available to those who repent for their sinful, wretched life and express true belief in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Through his sacrifice and his alone can any of us have our sins wiped clean and our guilt removed through repentance and expressed belief. As the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is hope, there is peace, and there is joy in life when it's found in Christ. By the same token, if you're struggling with the inevitable guilt that comes with taking the life of an innocent child, do not harden your heart to those feelings. Don't ignore them and force them to just go away. Our conscience, either our own thoughts or possibly the promptings of the Holy Spirit, is there to guide us to God. When we steel ourselves to the nagging feelings, to the thoughts, the regrets, God will eventually stop calling and allow you to follow the path you desire. And no matter what you do, the guilt really won't go away. It will always be there. Only Christ can truly relieve you of that burden. So let me implore you. First, if you're facing a choice, choose life. 95% of women will tell you that you will not regret it. If you've made the choice to end a life, there is hope cleansing, peace, and joy in Christ. Do not ignore him. For those of us that are pro-life, as I've said before, do something. If you can donate, even a little bit, donate to a charity that promotes life and preferably Christ. The one I use is Preborn. See the link in the notes. It doesn't have to be them, but if you're able, find someone that's doing the legwork and support them. If you're not able to help financially, or even if you are, figure out how you can help and do it. And for everyone out there that's a Christian, be in prayer for these women who are facing what should be a difficult choice. Be in prayer for the ministries working for life. Be in prayer for those that have made an unfortunate choice to end a life. Even these men and women are image bearers of God with eternal souls. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins at one time. We were all hellbound because of our fleshly desires. We were all on the hook to pay the wages of our own sin. And just as we needed the salvation that Christ freely offered to us, they too all need Christ. So I wanted to wait until after Valentine's Day so I didn't create any emotional confusion out there. And breaking from my pattern, I'm not linking to this page. If you want to find it, I'm sure you can, but you don't want to find it. However, that said, this is so illustrative of where we are as a lost and perverse society, I just had to comment. From Slate.com, a far-left rag of a website, in their sex advice column, in which you can write in your questions and apparently get absolutely perverse, deviant, horrible advice for free, the question in question came in from Ms. I'm assuming Ms. Ms. Am I Alone? Not reading the question word for word, but I'll give you enough. She said that her first crush was on her uncle. She didn't say what age she was. And now, 
Again, no idea of age. She says she's attracted to two of her cousins. She's never considered acting on this or told anyone about this, but she's wondering if this is normal or if her brain is missing the evolutionary programming that makes you not be sexually attracted to your family. Or she wondered, is that programming really only applicable for parents and siblings? Yes, I know. I'm uncomfortable too. Hang with me. There's a method to my madness. The advice, as one could guess, is not even worth the zero dollars that we paid for it. Now keep in mind, these are people that do not believe in God, or in religion at all, or in a higher power, in absolute morals, in absolute ethics, or in absolute laws. They come from an evolutionary worldview which makes humans nothing more than slightly more advanced animals. This is very key to the advice that will be given. The advice starts with the latter question first, the tendency to not be attracted to your parents or siblings. The author cites the Westermark effect as the reason that we, as Homo sapiens, aren't attracted to those we grow up with. The theory was developed about 1890, which is only about 30 years after Darwin's Origin of Species was published, and I would be shocked if you couldn't draw a straight line between these two. Possibly passing through the likes of Sigmund Freud. I wonder out loud to nobody but myself. So the theory is basically one of a reverse sexual imprint. Basically facial features, even smells of those you lived with prior to age six, causes you to something, something, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's man trying to perform logical analysis without using logic. It's like trying to measure something with a rubber ruler. The advice giver sums up this comment with, quote, Nurture's hands seem to be on the wheel. Huh. Sure does seem like there are hands on the wheel, doesn't it? Unfortunately, nurture isn't actually a thing. It's just kind of a conceptual thing. It not only doesn't have hands... It has no power. So close. Moving on to cousins. The author says that since you likely didn't live with them, that the evolutionary programming isn't there. He, of course, offers the standard warning of genetic defects if producing offspring with first cousins, but then says that there are some that argue third or fourth cousins are actually perfect. There are no first cousin risks, but theoretically you have genetic compatibility. He then suggests it might be time to, quote, bring out the family tree and start making some calls. I'll give you a moment to clean the vomit off your shirt. He then brings in animals, as was really predictable. Hey, animals, they don't really discriminate. In fact, a study suggests that the majority of the time they don't select outside of their family. They just want to get it on. Of course, the unstated implication is that since we're really nothing more than animals, well, eh, birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it, let's do it, let's fall in love, right? Then he wraps it up. He states that the, quote, taboo of cousin sex is really just socially based. It's probably fine that she's attracted to her uncle and cousins as, quote, maybe they're just hot. <laughs> He does say it's good that she's not interested in acting on it, as there are risks, as minor as they are, and it might cause some issues in the family. Uh huh. Then he wraps it up with, your thoughts and feelings are not crimes, you're fine. 
Okay, well, let me comment, and then you can go take a fully closed shower laying on the floor of the tub in the fetal position, repeating, so dirty, must get clean. This is literally where evolution brings us. One of the arguments against legitimizing homosexuality and then homosexual marriage is that it's the start of the slippery slope to bestiality, pedophilia, incest, polygamy, and pretty much you name it. Now, we were told that we were just homophobic or hateful or being dramatic by saying this, that this is just natural, that this is a process of evolution. Well, we already see polygamy being somewhat brought into normalization. Not legal yet, but not unacceptable, you know, if everyone is consenting. I also reviewed an article from USA Today, I believe it was, a few episodes back, that talked about how we really don't understand pedophilia. That's getting a lot of attention, too, just in the last few years. The reality is, if evolution is true, meaning we all evolve from nothing, starting with the Big Bang, life spontaneously starting from rock slime and an electric charge, eventually evolving through animals, and then here we are, then that means there is no firm law, no incontrovertible morals, no foundation for thoughts or logic, emotion, or reason. If everything was built on randomness, then everything is subject to, you guessed it, randomness. And because of that, then this author is absolutely correct in his analysis and advice. We're animals. This is natural. And the only thing holding us back is some evolutionary instincts and social constructs developed over time. But he actually very nearly hit the nail on the head when he said it seems like nurture's hands are on the wheel. So close. But what he's actually seeing is that, quote, the work of the law is written on their hearts. See, in the beginning, close relatives, including siblings, obviously procreated with each other. And this was not outlawed by God. The genetic code was not tainted by sin, at least not to the point that it would have caused a problem. And who else did they have? Now, this wouldn't have been cringy like it is today because it wasn't today. It was then. In fact, it wasn't until about 2,500 years later, as God was giving Moses the law, that sexual relations with close relatives was outlawed. At this point, found in Leviticus 18, God gave specific relations that we need to stay away from. Father, mother, stepfather, stepmother, sister, granddaughter, aunt, uncle, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law. Of course, there can be inferences to this as well, that although primarily the female is named, the male equivalent relations would apply also. If you go a few verses farther, you find a prohibition to homosexuality and bestiality, interestingly enough. He then makes it clear that the promised land that God was leading the Israelites to was inhabited by people that had perverted their land by doing these things, and God was driving them out and punishing them for their perversion. The law is written on our hearts, not nurtures or evolution's powerless guidance. That being said, we're all humans. We all have a definition of attractive, and whether it's the same or opposite sex, a stranger, a friend, or a blood relative, we'd be lying to say that we don't recognize people that fit our definition of attractive. The question is, what does our mind do with this? You could find an aunt or an uncle or a cousin attractive. There's nothing wrong with that. You're just recognizing your definition of attractive. But if your mind then moves into lust, 
that's when you fall into the sexual perversion or sexual deviance that the Bible warns us about. Likewise, a woman can recognize another woman as pretty or beautiful. A man can recognize another man as handsome or a good-looking guy. But when your mind moves into sexual deviance, that's where we need to have concern. And if you're human, the odds are pretty good that you've had lustful thoughts for at least some people. Unfortunately, this is the sin nature. It is sin. The battle for the Christian is between the sin nature and sanctification. Galatians 5, 19-24 tells us of this dichotomy, the conflict that's in all of us. Quote, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, this passage, it doesn't promise that we will be sinless once we're saved. It doesn't promise us that our lust will just disappear when we're saved. But it does tell us that we now have the ability to fight against them, that those sins and desires were taken care of on the cross. We don't have to give in to those anymore. And through persistent study, prayer, fellowship, our minds will be renewed. Our passions will turn to Jesus and our sin nature will give way to sanctification. What this confused and conflicted young lady needed to hear was the gospel. Not that evolution says she's just fine with the perversion in her thought process. She needed to know that the way she's thinking is sinful. It's against the laws of God, but that Christ died and paid for these sins. That salvation, cleansing from this sin, is actually possible if she would repent and believe. And then as Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Unfortunately, this lost and confused woman went to a lost and confused person on a lost and confused website to get advice. And as Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And that's where we find them. All of these individuals need prayer and need Jesus. This woman needed relief from her guilt. She needed hope for the possibility of a cleared conscience. She needed a way out of the shame that she's feeling. She knows that there is something wrong with her thinking. And all this author did is tell her that she has no choice but to be stuck there. Just accept it. It's fine. How sad is that? If you're not saved, you may feel the same way. Let me tell you that there is hope in Jesus. There is much more to life than being stuck in your shame and your guilt. And if we're saved... Remember, Christ has paid for our sins. We do not have to just give in to the flesh anymore. We have the ability to find the way out that's promised to us. 
I know that not everyone has time to dig into the massive amount of media and content that comes out every day. <laughs> Shoot, I seriously don't. I've even thought about this podcast. You know, what if I get behind? I mean, I'll never run out of material and I can easily just comment on stuff. But as with this next story, when when you start digging into what you know, what you've heard, and, and then what you think, and then you start digging into aspects of the story deeper, oh man, you can really follow long, winding rabbit trails. The trick is to know when to cut those trails short. And at some point before my death, I hope to figure out that trick. So this started with an article from The Blaze. Headline, Mandatory Bicycle Helmet Law Revoked in Seattle for Racial Equity. Okay, before you say something, yes, I agree. On its face, this kind of just seems ridiculous. And as it turns out, yeah, that, that's correct. But this is the world we live in today. We must look at everything through a lens of race, because if we don't, then maybe people would start to forget that race is of the utmost importance, and maybe we just see each other as people. And, and that's not really politically or economically lucrative, especially for the leftist race baiters. So yeah, that's kind of where we are here. Now, for 20 years, Seattle has had a law on the book saying that you must wear a helmet when you ride your bike. Data from their Board of Health says that using helmets provides a 63 to 88% reduction in risk of head and brain injuries, which is why they put the law into place in the first place. Personally, I don't think that there should be any helmet laws for bikes or motorcycles. I don't think that there should be seatbelt laws. This should really be a personal choice. I think seatbelts and motorcycle helmets are pretty important. Okay, I, I would use them anyway. Bike helmets, well, I don't know, it kind of depend for me. But again, to me, that's a personal choice. And this brings up a very divided and very debated and often contentious rabbit trail, usually starting with something like, so you don't think we should have any laws? Which, <laughs> no, I think laws where your choice infringes on the safety of others are generally, and I won't say always, but generally good. And this is where we'll stop the rabbit trail with this comment. I look at laws, mandates, and recommendations and try to inform myself the best I can before making a decision. For instance, yellow speed limit signs. Those are generally found before curves. They're not law and they're not enforceable. They're suggestions. Depending on the car I'm driving and depending on if I know the road or not, depending on the type of road, I may slow down to the suggested speed. Or I may not slow down at all. I try to make the best decision I can with all of the information I have. Specifically talking about bicycle deaths. In 2019, there were 843. No, 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 no. Not in Seattle, in the United States. Okay. 90% of these were adults over the age of 20 that should be able to make their own informed decision. In 1975, when I think we can all agree, if bike helmets existed, they surely weren't used, there were 1,003 deaths, 78% of which were under 20. Now, looking deeper, we find an increase in the under 20 population of about 7.5% from 75 to 2019, with a 90% reduction in bike deaths. For those over 20, we see a 170% growth in population and a nearly 360% growth in bike deaths. Now, does this tell us that helmets stop death? Yeah, yeah, probably. At least in kids, it looked like it might have had a, a very positive effect. 
It could also show us that those that didn't grow up with helmets are now adults that don't use them, or that there aren't nearly as many kids that ride bikes these days. I don't know. And we do know that there's a portion of deaths where the operator was legally drunk. I guess that's biking while intoxicated. So you'd have to dig into the data to really determine the efficacy of helmets. But let's just say that we never implemented helmets and deaths in kids grew with their population now up to say 850 per year with a total death count of let's just go crazy and say we're now hitting 2000 per year. For 2020, this would actually be less deaths than drowning or fire and heat or malnutrition or HIV and AIDS or diarrhea, for instance. So how important are helmet laws exactly? I mean, you know, when you put it in context. But the issue at hand isn't one of personal freedom or choice. The issue here is that, again, cops are racist right? In fact, Seattle made a small token cut to the police budget, you know, for BLM optics, and made it very clear that they didn't like cops. That happened in August of 2020. By the summer of 2021, Seattle was in a very precarious position with a large percentage of policemen and women quitting to the point that the mayor turned around and used the (laughs) savings from not having to pay those that quit to offer large bonuses to sign on as a Seattle cop. But of course, why would you want to work for people that call you racist and hate your very existence? So in another case of using data incorrectly, they use the data of who is being stopped and fined for not wearing a helmet to justify that apparently racist Seattle cops want to stick it to blacks and homeless people. The data shows that homeless people made up half of all the helmet tickets, an amount of $81 that, I mean, come on, does any cop seriously think that the homeless person is going to pay this? And they found that out of the other 50% of tickets, blacks were ticketed approximately four times more than whites. Okay, let's stop here for just a minute. Now, are you starting to see what I deal with with rabbit trails? I mean, this is a blessing and a curse. The narrative is that bike helmets save lives, right? Can we agree on this? The point of a ticket is to enforce the following of laws, right? I mean, you're with me so far, right? In other words, if you get a speeding ticket, the theory is that speed is dangerous. Limits have been placed on all roads based on a variety of factors. If you break that law, the ticket is there as a form of forcing you back into compliance under a threat. But the enforcement, theoretically, is actually for your own safety. It may be a fine, but it's a fine meant to force you to protect yourself. Hopefully I explained that okay. Are you following me? So when we apply that to this, we have racist white cops that hate blacks and homeless people so much that they're trying to push them into a position of being safer while biking. So the cops are trying to help blacks and homeless people live through one of the main mechanisms police officers have to use. (laughs) Totally racist, right? Somehow, maybe. 
Okay, but we need to look at one more piece of information. Again, rabbit trails. How many tickets are issued every year? This has got to be a rampant issue, right? I mean, if they're making a deal about this, it's got to be big. Well, I found one article that says that since 2017, and I hold on to your butts here, there were 117 citations given total since 2017. This was in an article that was written in December 2020. So, you know, I'm not, not a... Not a math, well, actually, I'm pretty good at math. I'm not a math genius here, but 2017, 2018, 2019, I'm using my fingers, 2020, that's four, four years, 117 citations. The article says that, quote, at least 50 of which were given to people who either currently or at some point struggled with homelessness. (laughs) Wait a minute, what? What does that mean? At some point, like like when they got the ticket or just at some point in their lives. Okay, so if we say at least 50 and the article says half, then let's say 57 of the tickets went to the homeless because that's close and it makes the math work out nicely for, for the remainder. That would mean that 48 tickets were issued to blacks and 12 to whites. Now that means that in four years... Uh, The homeless were ticketed about 14 times per year, blacks about 12, and whites about 3 times per year in a city with a population of over 725,000 people. Is this an issue? I mean, seriously, this is an issue. But this is what the liberal left does. The... The left, well, I'll say at least the politicians, they don't really care about blacks or homeless or whites or anybody. They care about power and control. They care about themselves. And the left for decades now has seen the black population not as humans, but as a demographic voting block to use. And as long as they give them a little bit candy to nibble on, they can control their vote. Now, notice how nearly all of these articles, the the one I'm talking about, but if you start looking it up, Look at how these articles talk about percentage and ratio, but they don't give you the actual number. This is what I've said before. Those that work angles of optics to enrage you or placate you, to control you, they know how to use the correct form of data in order to manipulate you. This is very simply called lying. This is a lie of omission. the very least, by not giving you all the information, because they have reasons not to do that. And it's really, it's a willing lie of commission, since I can almost guarantee that discussions were had about the best way to present the data to get the reaction they wanted. I mean, how many of you would ever looked into this article, this issue, to this depth? You would have all assumed, as I did at first, that there was likely a number of tickets handed out, a large number of tickets handed out, something substantial. I mean, to cause a review like this and a and a, and a board decision and, and in news articles, but it wasn't. Furthermore, I'd be very curious to know, are there more blacks and homeless people riding around without helmets than whites? Maybe this discrepancy isn't due to racism and apparently homelessnessism, Maybe it's because there are simply a lot more blacks and homeless that aren't wearing helmets. I, I don't know, but I bet they do. And I'd strongly assume 
that that's the exact root cause of the problem. Otherwise, they would have included that information in the article. Something like uh, a beat reporter saying, oh, I watched a white cop for an hour make eye contact with 14 white homeless people before he stopped and ticketed the one black man he found. You know that they tried to find proof that the cops were racist. But if nothing made it into the article, eh, they couldn't find what they were looking for. I can't say that for positive but I can come pretty close to guaranteeing it. Okay, I could go farther with this, but I wanted to bring up one other problem with this county, the hypocrisy of King County, of which Seattle is the seat or whatever they call them. Now, I was curious if this county was named after Martin Luther King Jr., as would be my question for just about anything named King these days. And yes, eventually it was named after MLK, but not at first. So, King County was founded in December of 1852. It was named for William R. King. Now, I know, I know I'm going to talk down to you, but I'll say it anyway. Obviously, this is the William R. King that was born in North Carolina and died in Alabama and was Franklin Pierce's, okay, I'll talk down to you again, our 14th president. It was his vice president. Now, he was apparently deathly ill when he was elected and he was living in Cuba to try to improve his health, which is where he was sworn in as VP in March of 1853. He then came back to the United States in April and died shortly thereafter, having only been the vice president for six weeks. And curiously enough, apparently after that, the office of vice president stayed vacant for the rest of Pierce's single term. Now, Pierce and King were both Democrats. Pierce and King were both very, very pro-slavery Democrats. Democrats. I just want to be sure that you heard that correctly. Now back to King County. In 1986, the county council voted to keep the name King, but reassociate the name with now Martin Luther King Jr. Now the reason they did this is because they discovered or realized or Maybe just at that point, they decided that it was important that William King's pro-slavery stance in 1852 as the Democratic vice president was unacceptable. I feel it's important to point out that King was the VP eight years before Lincoln was elected president, nine years before the Civil War. So looking at him in context, he was on one of the two sides of slavery, a side that was acceptable by many and was not acceptable by many others. But we always seem to forget that then isn't now. You know, would King have been pro-slavery if he knew what we do now? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. But I think that we need to give anyone in history a little leniency based on the context of the time they lived in, regardless of the fact that he was a pro-slavery Democrat. Did I mention that? Anyway, In 2005, the governor of Washington signed a bill into law officially allowing the county to reassociate the name of the county to MLK Jr., and in 2006, the county voted to change their logo from an imperial crown to an image of MLK. Okay, so they renamed the county because the original guy was a bad man. Well, look, this is something nobody talks about, but we really should. Martin Luther King Jr., for as great as he was on civil rights and peaceful resistance... It came to light in 2019 that MLK Jr. was a very bad man when it came to infidelity, sexual abuse of women, and he was literally a sexual deviant and sexual predator. 
FBI documents were released in 2019, transcripts of spying that they had done on King as part of an operation to try to pin him as a communist. And they they didn't find that, but they did discover a number of very disturbing things for someone that we hold in high regard and esteem. I'm not going to go into details. You can read the stories in the links below if you really want to, but let's just say adulteries, orgies, unnatural sex acts, quote-unquote, another quote, degeneracy and depravity, prostitutes, and rape. And these were apparently common occurrences, not just a one-time thing for each of those. Uh, So I'm wondering, with the information that's out there now, will King County change their namesake again? Or is being a sexual predator okay, as opposed to being pro-slavery? Now put them in context, okay? William King or Martin Luther King, which one was more wrong? Now your opinion may differ, but let me point out a few things. William King lived in an era where half of the population believed, for whatever reason they had, that slavery was okay and was economically important and was the way that things should be. Martin Luther King Jr., who served as a pastor from 1954 to 1960, lived in a time that he absolutely knew, per societal norms and the Bible, that he allegedly preached that adultery was wrong, and that orgies and sexual deviancy was wrong, and that rape was not just wrong, but illegal. William King lived in a time when slavery was legal. Martin Luther King lived in a time when rape was not. Who was more wrong? Now, maybe they should keep the name King County, but change the namesake to the King of Kings, King Jesus. How about that? Uh, Somehow, I don't think that's gonna, gonna happen. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I don't think the county should be named after either king in all reality. In fact, maybe we should just realize that for all that humans do good, humans do bad as well. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. The word in Greek translated as all means all. We tend to set people up as heroes and idols, and then we're crushed or disheartened or or maybe gloating when an idol comes crashing down. I'm sure that when King County was named for the vice president, it was done to honor a vice president. And that's it. Not to honor slavery. And when the namesake was changed to MLK Jr., it was done because he was a champion of civil rights. There was realistically no way to know at that time that he was a sexual deviant and a criminal. But now that Seattle, the seat of King County, knows this, and they're all about political optics and pandering, maybe they should show how much they value women, and as it happens, primarily black women— and change the namesake again. But you know they won't, as the intersectionality chart says that being black is more important than being a woman. So, you know, that would be bad optics if they changed it. And they can't have bad optics. King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, penned the words of Ecclesiastes, which has been interpreted in about any way you can possibly think of over the centuries. But in chapter 1, starting at verse 12, I think we have something that that's apt. It says this, quote, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Hmm. You know, as we humans move farther from God, as we continue to gather and claim more and more wisdom, our actions become more akin to chasing after wind or trying to hold water in our hand. What we've done to ourselves in this woke world is claim wisdom and increase massively our vexation and sorrow. So what do we do? Well, I mean, if we want to continue down this path, then we need to make sure we name nothing after anyone. I mean, shoot, in West Virginia, we have a massive number of every type of thing named after Senator Robert Byrd. Yeah, the same Senator Robert Byrd that was an exalted Cyclops in the Ku Klux Klan. And what we're finding across the entire country is that we have very flawed heroes. And I put that word in quotes. From a Christian standpoint, we know that all of our greatest biblical heroes and fathers of the faith were flawed, some gravely flawed, many gravely flawed. David, Solomon, Samson all had problems with women. Peter openly denied Jesus. Jonah ran away from God, and the list goes on. As Christians, we know and we rejoice that God can and does work through very flawed people. Now, as the world in general, you know, the pagan world, as they generally mimic the Christian world in many ways, the heroes, celebrities, and idols that we hold up are also all flawed. As Christians, we can't expect the non-Christians to act in Christian ways. They don't know how. Now, I don't know if William King was a Christian, but obviously there were many Christians that truly believed slavery was okay. They were wrong, but they weren't wrong in the time and context in which they lived. It was an accepted view. MLK Jr., however, claimed to be a Christian, preached and taught from the Bible, and absolutely knew that what he was doing was not only illegal in some cases, but also breaking God's laws. Now, I'll leave the analysis of the kings here. You can decide what you think. With regard to the naming of roads, buildings, hospitals, schools, cities, counties, and whatever else, I'm okay with naming them after people, and I'm okay with renaming things if we found something that we find to be distasteful or abominable in that person. But what we can't do, what I can't stand, is the shifting set of standards we use to determine what is and what isn't acceptable. This is the vanity, the chasing after wind that man has created in their systems absent of God. Now, the laws of God are concrete. Right is right, wrong is wrong. There is no ambiguity. There is no fumfering. There is no confusion. There is no shifting of standards out from under your feet. You know where you stand. And this is why man hates the commands of God. They don't work with what man has decided is wise at this moment in time 
which will change in the next moment. So my advice, ground yourselves in the word of God. Know that there is right and there is wrong, and the distinction in nearly every case is perfectly clear. And then do your best to navigate through this human existence, knowing that the unsaved of the world are scratching and clawing for truth, whether they know it or not. Use issues as simplistic sounding as repealing helmet laws because of racism to try to help others see the truth, the security, the hope, and the peace of God's word and commands. As 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.